0: Greetings, sports Insiders! Chris here today to let you know that today's episode is taken from Elsevier's Case of the Month with Dr. Raj. In the show notes, you'll find links to Elsevier's Medical Student Hub with the Case of the Month video series, as well as links to more content by Dr. Raj, including his own podcast. With that out of the way, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hi, Dr. Raj here, and I'm very happy today. This is going to be our first case. And of course, I want to say thank you to Elsevier. And this is going to be the Medical Student Hub Case of the Month featuring Dr. Raj, so I wanted to do something special and what is gonna be the hot topic right now for the last, oh my God, has it been eight, has it been 10 months, almost a year? Yes, it's gonna be when we talk about COVID-19. Is this gonna be on the board exams? Will this be on the USMLE? Chances are it's gonna be, yes, this is such a hot topic. It's affecting people across the world, whether you're a medical student, a resident, a fellow, or even an attending. And what are they gonna do is integrate that basic science with clinical knowledge. And that's why I brought you today to a case that I feel will integrate all these things, making you the best medical student, being the best clinician, and putting the basic science and clinical all together. So let's talk about something called atypical ARDS. The way we're going to do this is in a case-based format, just like my book, Beyond the Pearls. So this is a 63-year-old hypoxic woman with COVID-19 is admitted to the hospital for septic shock secondary to community-acquired pneumonia. Stop right there. So when you have a viral infection of the lungs, are you predisposed to bacterial lung infections? The answer is Yes, and we've known this from many viruses in the past. And which one really jumps to mind is influenza. And on your board exams, when someone has influenza virus, what bacterial pneumonias are they predisposed to? That's right. You always have to think common things are common. And what is the most common cause of community-acquired pneumonia? The answer is outstanding strep pneumo. But I know what you're thinking. I read your mind. You want me to say what? Staph aureus. And you're right. People who do have influenza are more predisposed to staph aureus. But remember, common things are what? They're common. So even if you're HIV positive, the most common cause of community acquired pneumonia is what? Strep pneumo. Even if unfortunately you're an alcoholic, what's the most common cause of community acquired pneumonia? The answer is strep pneumo. You got the point. So we're not surprised this patient has Uh, COVID-19, and on top of that develops a community-acquired pneumonia. So what did this patient get? Looks like the patient got remdesivir, got dexamethasone, and got some uh, monoclonal antibodies. And let's talk about those. So when we talk about remdesivir, well, this is going to be right now a medication that we give through what? The IV. And there were studies that show we should give it to five days. Uh, Initially, we were thinking about 10, now it's going to be five. And when do we give this medication? When you have what we call a moderate to severe uh, COVID-19 infection. And how do we know that your COVID-19 infection is going to be moderate or severe? A couple things. That there are guidelines where we look at the oxygen saturations. So if you're hypoxic, you may be a candidate for this. And most people who are going to be hypoxic, moderate, they're going to be inpatients, which is, you know, very convenient because how do we give this medication? Through the IV. Another reason why we would consider you to be moderate or severe would because of the chest x-ray, because of the CT scan, because of imaging on the chest. And there are what we call some findings that, you know, nothing is pathognomonic on imaging of the chest, but classic findings would include this word called ground glass. And this ground glass is going to be where? in the periphery of the lungs. So you have findings on chest imaging, you're hypoxic, you're going to be in the hospital. What are you going to get? Remdesivir. And how does remdesivir work? It's an antiviral medication. We have studied this in other viruses in the past. And what does it claim to fame? It reduces the duration of symptoms. So this patient got remdesivir. And of course, what do they love on the USMLE? They love side effects. And what Uh, organs do we always worry about when you give remdesivir? That's right, you wanna monitor liver function and you might as well see how the kidneys are doing. On top of that, the patient got dexamethasone. So when we talk about dexamethasone, that's really not a new drug, it's a steroid. And we've been using steroids for quite a long time for so many different things when we talk about medicine. And what is the claim to fame for dexamethasone is that it reduces my favorite M word in the whole world, which is what? Mortality. So there were studies done in the UK that showed that if you were someone that comes in and you had very low oxygen levels, you were in the medical ICU, you're on the ventilator, that if we gave dexamethasone, that it actually reduced mortality, mainly in those who are on the ventilator, but also those who are hypoxic, but of course, are there side effects when you give steroids to people? The answer is yes. And in the trial, they give a pretty good dose of dexamethasone. And what are gonna be some of those side effects? That's right, I heard you. Euphoria. There's even something called steroid psychosis. It can make your blood sugar worse. It could raise up your blood pressure. So these are gonna be things that you balance out with risk and benefit. And then the last thing are gonna be these monoclonal antibodies. And I'm gonna be the first to say this, these are not FDA approved. So when I think of monoclonal antibodies, it's you know kind of a, a spinoff to initially, when we had this pandemic, we we're talking a lot about convalescent plasma. And convalescent plasma means we take the antibodies from someone who recovered from COVID-19 and we give them to another individual. But because of how sick are these patients? How good are these antibodies? There's so many questions. are now manufacturing these antibodies in the lab and that's what we call them monoclonal antibodies but they did not get FDA approval yet they're on the cusp of getting this we may use them for uh, compassionate reasons but this patient got remdesivir dexamethasone monoclonal antibodies and let's see how the patient's doing so they also received traditional antibiotics why there's a community acquired pneumonia And if you have community-acquired pneumonia and in the ICU, what category of antibiotics would you choose? You read my mind. I would choose two antibiotics. One would be a third-generation cephalosporin. What's the classic one that we use? That's right, we'll probably use something like ceftriaxone. Now, combine that with some atypical coverage, and usually we use a macrolide. Which one? Azithromycin. Patient got lots of fluids. Why? Maybe the patient, not even maybe, this patient is in septic shock. And when you're septic, do you need fluids? The answer is yes. And unfortunately the patient did not respond to fluids and eventually required vasopressors. And what is gonna be the vasopressor of choice when someone has septic shock? That's right. It's gonna be norepinephrine, brand name, Levophed. So all this stabilized her condition. However, subsequently she developed something called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And because of this, patient was on the ventilator. Her oxygen requirements increases until she's receiving 100% oxygen. Her vent settings are volume-controlled, continuous, mandatory ventilation. We call that assist-controlled, volume-controlled, where you pick the volumes you you want the patient to get. They're guaranteed these volumes. So her respiratory rate was set at 22. Her tidal volumes were 330 mLs, and this is based upon six mLs per kilogram or for ideal body weight. Because when we talk about acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, the one thing we know that improves mortality, that improves survival when you're on the ventilator, is giving low tidal volumes. Why? Because you want to actually protect the good lung that's left. Because when we think about ARDS, it's a patchy lung disease, good lung and bad lung you want to p- protect the remaining lung you don't want to over-distend them with big tidal volumes so giving low tidal volumes is definitely what we want to do and the patient got that patient's on 100% fio2 patient's on 5 peep which is positive end expiratory pressure and we are measuring something called a peak and plateau pressure and those numbers are 25 and 22 so i can tell you when questions like this appear on the board exams what's one of the key things is do you know what a peak and plateau pressure is? And are these values normal? So on exam, she is low grade fever, normal tensive, tacky. And of course her respiratory rate at this point matches what's on the ventilator at 22. The skin is cool. There's no JVD. Heart sounds are rapid and irregular but otherwise unremarkable. Diffuse crackles are heard on pulmonary exam. There is no edema. And the remainder of the physical exam is non-contributory. Ah. They did an arterial blood gas that shows a pH of 7.31. If a pH is 7.31, what is that patient? Acidemic or alkalemic? That's right, they're acidemic. And anytime we talk about acid base, we always think back to our good friends who? The Henderson-Hasselbalch equation, where we say that what two things influence the pH? That's right, the CO2 and the, the bicarb. So it looks like I didn't give you the bicarb, but I definitely gave you the CO2 and the CO2 is 50. So just based upon this, what type of acid-base disorder does this patient have? Oh, you read right. you got it. It's a respiratory acidosis. And the partial pressure of arterial oxygen is 54. And by far, this is a very, very, very low uh, oxygen level. Chest x-ray is done, and I put the chest x-ray here on the right side of your screen, and it shows exactly what I would expect with someone who has ARDS. This is gonna be a patchy heterogeneous lung disease. There's gonna be some good lung. There's gonna be some bad lung. And this patient is what? Intubated. So based upon this, which of the following is the most appropriate management of this patient? So would the answer be decrease the tidal volumes? Would it be start a prone position maneuver, which means you take the patient and you flip them on their stomach, and and why would we do that? Well, a couple things that when we're talking about COVID-19, we realize that one thing that would really help people out, whether they're in the ICU, whether they're on the ventilator, whether they're at home, is telling them to, you know what, lay on your stomach. And why would we do that? To help out with ventilation perfusion matching. So maybe should we put the patient in a prone position should we start inhaled nitric oxide which is a dilator of the pulmonary arteries to increase blood flow to the lungs? Or a prostacycline analog, another category of drug that dilates the blood vessels going to the lungs? Should we increase, should we decrease the respiratory rate? Should we increase something called PEEP, positive end expiratory pressure? And the way I think about PEEP, is a button on the vent where when you turn it up, Think of someone breathing out on expiration through the ET tube and a valve closes. And when it closes, what happens? Pressure backs up all the way down the trachea, down to the bronchi, all the way to the distal alveoli. And it keeps the alveoli what? Open. Or should we do something called venous venous ECMO? And what does ECMO stand for? extra membrane oxygenation. Now, once again, ECMO is not a treatment, it's a bridge. A bridge to treat the underlying cause, a bridge to keep the, give the lungs time to heal. It's very invasive. You need to have these very big catheters put into the big veins in the body. So what do you think would be the next best thing, the next most appropriate management of this patient? So by looking at this, what really jumps out at me going to be this oxygen level being very, very low. And if you want to improve the oxygen levels, you want to do simple things first, whether it's going to be in reality when you're in the ICU with the patient in front of you or on the board exams. So I don't, I wouldn't decrease the tidal volume. It's already low. Um, I don't think I would want to decrease the respiratory rate anymore. It's going to make the CO2 even go higher. I want to balance the low tidal volumes with a higher respiratory rate, so I can keep the, the carbon dioxide at a semi-decent uh, a, a level. Now, I'm not worried, everyone, that the CO2 is 50. Why? When you have people with ARDS, we do give low tidal volumes, like I mentioned. And when you give low tidal volumes, the CO2 has to go up, And we call that permissive hypercapnia. And the reason why I said I wouldn't decrease the respiratory rate lower is because by lowering the respiratory rate, I'll make the CO2 go up even more beyond my comfort level. So that's why I usually have a higher respiratory rate, lower tidal volume. So it wouldn't be A or D. Um, VV ECMO, maybe, unfortunately, this patient may go on to that, but it's a little too invasive for right now. So it really comes down to, do you want to prone the patient, make the patient lay on their stomach? or should we just increase the peak? So how do I know what's the right answer? Well, you know what? I didn't forget that you need to look at what is this peak and plateau pressures and what are they? So peak and plateau pressures tell me if the lungs are gonna be compliant or non-compliant. And when you have ARDS, of course, you're worried about a non-compliant lung most of the time. So if your lungs are non-compliant, meaning that you have a very, very high peak and a plateau pressure, you really can't start cranking up the PEEP. But in this case, the peak and plateau pressures are normal. So instead of doing something where uh, you wanna turn to patients, especially an intubated patient, it is very time consuming. You do need a wonderful team to help you out. I would do simple things first. I would increase the PEEP. It's only at a level of five, which is a very, very small number. And then see what kind of benefit you'll get by turning it up slowly. So the answer here is going to be what? E is N Edward. Very good. So I put this here for everyone. So when we talk about peak and plateau pressures, that, you know, the peak pressure is how much pressure it takes to get the breath into the lungs all the way down to the alveoli. So during inspiration, it goes all the way up, almost to, in this case, close to 20 centimeters of water. A plateau pressure is something we measure where at the end of inspiration, a valve closes, and we check the pressure at the end of inspiration. So when you have a high peak, and let's say you have a high plateau, then you have a compliance problem in the lung, such as ARDS. But if you have a high peak and a normal plateau, it's more of a resistance problem, such as having a lot of mucus in the endotracheal tube. And when we talk about PEEP, what happens is, at the end of expiration, like you and me, we need to go all the way back to the, bit, to the start of the respiratory cycle, which is called, in USMLE Step 1, the FRC, the Functional Residual Capacity. But on a ventilator, we could use what's called positive end expiratory pressure. And if you give this PEEP, it can never go back to FRC because there's always going to be a little pressure left in the lung. So when I said this patient had a pressure of five of PEEP, this is gonna be the PEEP right here. And what we're doing is increasing this pressure when you give more PEEP. So the answer is E. So let's talk a little about COVID-19. And I wanted to say that, you know, it's been very humbling being on the front lines, you know, being with patients in the ICU. In fact, it, it seems like I'm always crying because my patients are there, they're lonely family can't come in, uh, when patients are on the ventilator, they're on the ventilator for weeks to months. I'm not even joking. So it's been really tough. But when we talk about you know COVID-19, the truth is that most people, 80%, are going to have mild symptoms. And I don't get to see most of the patients, and that's a good thing. But around 20% of the patients will end up in the ICU, and about maybe half of those patients will unfortunately end up on the ventilator. And when we talk about who gets ARDS, it varies by geographic location. It depends upon what uh, hospital data we're looking at. And when we talk about the risk factors for individuals getting severe COVID-19, well, what do we know already? That we know that uh, older in age is always going to be a risk factor, underlying medical conditions. So, of course, my patients with asthma, COPD, bronchiectasis, pulmonary fibrosis, they're going to be at a higher risk. People with already uh, known heart disease, whether it's to be coronary artery disease or heart failure, are going to be at a higher risk. Having an elevated BMI, being obese, why? That we know that obesity, they will have just a baseline high level of inflammation to begin with. And you know having an infection on top of that, causing more inflammation could be enough to tip the scales in the wrong direction when it comes to having a severe illness. People who have kidney disease or liver disease, and of course, we always worry about people who are immunosuppressed. Are you on high-dose steroids? Are you going to be on drugs that, that suppress your immune system? Are you a transplant patient? You're know, on drugs like tacrolimus and Cellcept and prednisone. All these things are going to factor in. And when we talk about what you know, how do we know that an individual is going towards a severe illness? How do we know an individual is going towards the medical ICU? Well, are they septic? And in the question I gave you, we said the patient was in septic shock. So this in itself is gonna be another talk, but how do we define sepsis in the year 2020? We use what's called the, uh, the SOFA score. And what the SOFA score is, is basically something where we talk about the the sepsis organ functional assessment. So it's gonna be this over here. And basically we look for a change in the SOFA score plus a source of infection. And when we talk about um, septic shock, septic shock will be defined as elevated lactic acid, as well as having a mean arterial pressure less than 65 after appropriate resuscitation with IV fluids. But we'll talk more about sepsis in a different talk, but anytime you're going towards sepsis, septic shock, you know this patient's not heading in the right direction. So what are gonna be some features in someone with COVID-19 that are associated with a poor outcome? These are things that we order when people come to the hospital, get admitted to the medical ICU. We know that individuals who are lymphopenic are at a higher risk, elevated liver enzymes, Elevated lactate dehydrogenase. We check a CRP, C-reactive protein in a ferritin level, D-dimers. And this is going to be very important because, you know, when we talk about COVID-19, they clot. They clot everywhere. They clot in the artery. They clot in the vein. So this is why a very hot topic is, well, the anticoagulation, the prophylaxis, what dose? Should we give them higher doses of anticoagulation? coagulation. So very hot topics when we talk about COVID-19. And one thing we have seen is that there's going to be coagulation dysfunction. So let's go back to this atypical ARDS and how are patients with COVID-19, how are they going to be hypoxic? So, you know, for the longest time, you know, we thought, I thought we knew how to treat ARDS. And a lot of the classical things we did for ARDS, you know, It worked great for others, but it just didn't seem to work when we talk about patients who have COVID-19. And one of the humbling things I realized is that, you know, patients with COVID-19, they could look good on the outside, but they would have very, very low oxygen levels. And our comfort level not to intubate these patients has really changed. I mean, there are patients who have oxygen levels in the 80s, and we don't put them on the ventilator. And these are all the different things that we're always learning because it's been such a humbling experience. So when we think about ARDS, there are two types. You know, there's the typical one, which you know, I just presented to you. You know, someone comes with ARDS, they have a low compliant lung. The lungs are very stiff, they have a very high plateau pressure. And because in your lungs you have something called hypoxic basal constriction, you get a lot of right to left shunting. And what else in uh, influences shunting is using things like positive pressure ventilation and PEEP. And what usually happens is when we do give PEEP, like we did in the question, they distend the alveoli, give the alveoli more surface area, better for oxygen diffusion. And this is the the classic thing that we saw. But when we talk about some patients with COVID-19, they have this atypical ARDS where, you know, their lungs are actually a lot more compliant than the classics. They're gonna have a normal plateau pressure, but you know what? They don't respond to PEEP, they just don't. And we get all the negative uh, effects of PEEP, and one of those negative effects is having very low blood pressure, but not improving the hypoxemia. And in these patients, doing the prone position really seemed to help out. Now we knew about prone position for ARDS, and there are trials for classic ARDS that show it reduces mortality, But clinically, we've never seen such a robust response to proning like we do now when we have COVID-19 patients. And this is where this terminology came from. It's this atypical ARDS. So when we talk about ARDS in general, I gave the classic definition here. It's acute nonsense. There are bilateral findings on a CT or chest X-ray, something called the PF ratio, which is the P little aO2 divided by the FiO2, well, if we wanted to talk about what is a PF ratio in you and me, if you were to do an arterial blood gas on me, trust me, my PaO2 would be about 100. And right now I'm breathing you know, 21% oxygen. So if you take 100 divided by 0.21, the answer is 500. But you can imagine ARDS, your oxygen levels are going down. I'm giving more oxygen. So when you do the math, that number, is not 500 anymore, it gets lower and lower and lower. Now, and PF ratio less than 300 will give you mild ARDS, 200 will be even a moderate, 100 will give you severe. So it gets lower and lower and lower. So this is why we talk about a PF ratio. And this is assuming you're on at least five of PEEP, like in the question we just did. And of course, the findings in the lung, the findings in chest X-ray can't be explained by the heart Because in general, if you just look at the chest x-ray, heart failure and ARDS on imaging look almost exactly the same. So when we go to people who have COVID-19 and are becoming very ill and hypoxic and developing ARDS, I mean, a big part of this is gonna be this inflammation, this cytokine, cytokine storm. And we notice that there's a lot of increase in many different interleukins. Increases in IL 6, and many of us will check this when our patients get admitted to the hospital. We definitely use interleukin 6 inhibitors in the treatment. We're looking at other types of interleukins like IL 10 and tumor necrosis factor. And like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of hypercoagulability in these patients, making them very predisposed to things like pulmonary embolism, DVTs. I'm just talking about the lungs, not to mention that they have documented cases of. Of heart attacks and strokes, it's, it's, it's very scary. So when we talk about, you know, when do we want to put a patient in the medical ICU? Or when do we want to intubate? Well, if they have hemodynamic instability, multi-organ failure, definitely come to the ICU. When it comes to worsening hypoxia, you know, we definitely tell our patients whether they're in a regular floor, at home, in the ICU to try to lay on their stomach as much as possible. We use supplemental oxygen. And one of the hardest parts about managing, managing these patients is if in the beginning of this pandemic, we were worried that if we don't intubate them and use things like CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure or bilevel positive airway pressure, that we're gonna keep on spreading all this aerosolized virus. And we're gonna make not only the patient, but family, and people and staff in the hospital at risk. So it was really hard to decide what should we do with these patients? Of course, you know, when they come to the medical ICU, they're in a negative pressure room. Many hospitals are trying to cohort their patients and put them in a a separate area of the hospital if that's gonna be possible. So, you know, having knowledge not to put them on the ventilator right away has really helped out as we learn from our mistakes earlier in the pandemic till now. So this is going to be the stages when we talk about COVID-19, you know, stage one is the early stage where it's going to be the viral response. And then when we talk about, you may have heard on the news, they say, well, we have to wait till around day seven to see what happens. Well, this is where you have a host inflammatory response, where we have this cytokine storm, where this may take a turn for the worse. And this is where they may end up in uh, the medical ICU or on the ventilator. And when we talk about, you know, how do we treat and all the different managements we have for COVID-19, you know, you know, up front is where we think about giving medications like remdesivir, which we talked about already. But when you have that cytokine storm, that's where we start talking about giving dexamethasone. And we mentioned a lot about this IL-6 and there is an IL-6 inhibitor known as tocilizumab. And we have been using medications like this when it comes time to this um, cytokine storm that could occur in the patient themselves. So this is another diagram of those phases. So one thing I wanted to mention is that, a lot of terminology is very important when we talk about COVID-19, that number one, when we talk about the terms, the incubation period. So that's gonna be the period from after you are exposed or have COVID-19 to the moment that you develop symptoms. And in general, that's usually gonna be around 14 days, but most people will develop symptoms around day five to day seven. But one of the things that's been very confusing is, well, when are you the most uh, infective and when are the highest chance of passing on the virus to others? And we're always arguing, is the word asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic? It made almost the entire world confused about this terminology but it's going to be in the days prior to showing symptoms. And if you don't have symptoms, then literally you'll be asymptomatic. But in the same note, of course, anyone is going to be pre-symptomatic before they have symptoms. But this is when we talk about being very infected towards others. Then, of course, that um, from that point, you will have your viral phase, which we talked about, Hopefully you won't get into the cytokine storm. Then even afterwards, there's gonna be a coagulation phase where people have been documented to have heart attacks and strokes afterward. And there's even a late uh, inflammatory phase. And we know now that many people have chronic symptoms of COVID-19 and many people are talking about brain fog and muscle aches and just different difficulties, sleeping and memory and all these different things. So it's still gonna be a very hot topic even out of the medical ICU. So how do we care for patients who are not intubated? Well, we already mentioned that we have to be comfortable with a lower oxygen level. We use things such as high flow nasal cannula. What does high flow mean? Well, flow is volume over time. So we can give very high flows and give oxygen to help these patients out. And of course, we always wanna be careful of exposing others. So they're always in the appropriate room when we do therapies like this. And one thing is if they need nebulizers, we try to avoid that because they're aerosolizing procedures. And many studies have come out, and this is an older study, one of the first studies that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at critically ill patients in a hospital in Seattle. And when we look at this, you know, there was a 50% mortality between ICU days one and 14. So this is definitely something that it was very Um, important to always gather the data. It's always important to see what worked and what didn't work. And we always, always want to learn from not only the good stories, but from the mistakes that we've made in the past. So what are some general principles in ICU care? You know, it's very important that we have a dedicated staff to care for COVID patients. We want to minimize the staff entering the room. We wanna limit aerosolizing procedures like doing bronchoscopy. We don't wanna send people in there every other second to do a chest x-ray or arterial blood gas. You know, I use the word cohorting patients. We like to separate our patients and put them in one section of the hospital. And of course, you know, we wanna be, you know, realize that when we talk about shortage of staff, that it's not just the staff, we always worry about medical supplies, sedation, all the things that we need to care for patients on the ventilator long-term. And of course, when you're in the ICU setting, we're gonna monitor the heart, we're gonna order appropriate labs up front, And we definitely know that COVID-19 affects every single organ in the body. And we definitely have a low threshold, if appropriate to get a echocardiogram and everyone gets an ECG. We get a lot of inflammatory markers here. I listed many of them that we use, like a ferritin, like an interleukin-6, like a fibrinogen, and of course, you know, when we talk about their course and care in the ICU, we want to make sure that they're comfortable, that we give appropriate sedation, analgesia, nutritional support, making sure their glucose is okay. DVT prophylaxis is so important. And of course, we have our protocols that we go through to make sure that we're crossing the T's and dotting the I's in the medical ICU. And I think the most important one is you know, compassionate and engaging the family and giving them as many updates as possible because it is a real sad time. And of course, there are many therapeutic options. When we talk about ARDS and COVID-19, we spoke about many of these already, but I just wanted to list many of these out there. And the big things that we talked about was for ARDS, we talked about using these lower tidal volumes. We talked about in the vignette that if you suspect a superimposed pneumonia, Remember to treat with the appropriate antibiotics. And when we think about steroids, we we don't give steroids for mild COVID-19. We don't give them for people in an outpatient setting, but if you're gonna be in this cytokine storm, there was data with dexamethasone that it could reduce mortality. And of course, one of the last things that we would consider is something called ECMO. And we mentioned that very briefly in our clinical vignette uh, to help out with the oxygenation. This is not a treatment, but a bridge to let the lungs heal, and of course, you know anyone that comes to the medical ICU, you want to establish the goals of care right away because we know these patients tend to be older in age. They have comorbidities. It's so important. We talk to uh, their doable power of attorney, their surrogate. Do they have a living will? And of course, it's always appropriate to talk about uncomfortable topics such as palliative care. And here's a picture of me in our USC medical ICU. And with that being said, I was gonna say goodbye to everyone, but it seems like we have some medical student questions. So let's go through these together. So how will medical education change following this pandemic? Do You think it was wise that a majority of medical schools pulled out of clinical rotations at the beginning of the pandemic, or was that a valuable time for students to be involved? Wow, that is a really good question. And I would say the answer is not black and white, is that I think the first and most important thing is being safe. And I really feel that safety is not just to the medical student, that's the obvious answer, but to the frontline workers. And when I say that, it's not just doctors, it's the respiratory therapists. It's my amazing nurses. It's my nutritionists, It's everyone in the hospital. And what do I mean by that is that, you know, when this pandemic first started, I mean, I hate to say it but we really really weren't as prepared as we thought and a lot of that was to be the personal protective equipment and you know as much as I love education I'm giving this talk right now because I love teaching so much we just didn't have enough personal protective equipment for all the essential workers and you know we have amazing students here at USC and you know as much as they wanted to learn most students realize that we need to have the right people to have the right equipment. So I think if that wasn't an issue, I would be more um, pro saying, sure, let everyone come in, let's teach, let's learn, let's help. But safety for the patient, safety for everyone is one of the most important things. At the, at the same time, you know, I think that the learning was still there, even though you weren't in the room with me, seeing a patient that, you know, everyone's different. But one thing I know I did was, you know, we got a chance to discuss the case outside the medical ICU. We sit down in front of the screen, look at the chest X-ray, look at the CT scan of the chest, talk about the case. And I think, you know, in those regards, the teaching can still be there. But, you know, there are so many types of students, and I always love the passion, and there are people who want to be in there and help, and I really could appreciate it. And on the other note, you know, there were, you know, some medical students who were happy that they had time to either prepare for a board exam, take electives that they didn't need to be hands-on with. I know many people took radiology electives, things that made a little bit more sense, you know, but of course there are other students that complained that, you know, med med school kept on going and a a rotation they wanted to be hands-on, now they can't. So there's never gonna be a great answer, but I always would say the most important thing is safety for the patient, for the healthcare professionals and for the student. That's a great question. So do patients with COVID-19 respond well uh, to prone position ventilation as regular ARDS patients? Wow, great question. Whoever asked me that probably already saw my PowerPoint. So we know about prone position ventilation for quite some time. There was actually good data that it reduced mortality in traditional ARDS if you did it early. And we did it when the PF ratio was less than 150. And even though I've prone many patients with traditional ARDS, I've never seen such a big response to prone position as we do when we talk about patients with uh, COVID-19. So, and when we talk about prone position, it's not about having a big machine that rotates all the way over. It's literally just flipping the patient. You need to have a good team. You need to coordinate with nursing, but yes, they respond actually even better than most patients who just have traditional ARDS. Um, During the pandemic, physicians' mental health has been affected by mass casualties. Does mental health have a place in medical education? Will more doctors be needing mental health resources or will burnout rates be even faster than before? I mean, these are amazing questions and I'm gonna answer that question talking about me, my partners, my friends, my mentors that, yeah, I mean, I I mentioned earlier that I'm always kind of tearing up. I mean, I'm, I think I'm more emotional than I've ever been. It's not just one thing, it, it definitely adds on. And like I said, I mean, when you, someone comes to the medical ICU, there's always a small part of me that's happy they're in the right place. We're gonna do the best job we can, but this virus is so humbling and we don't have all the answers. And you know, every time we think we're ahead of it, we're not. Every time I think we are, have the pandemic under control, we're not. And, you know, speaking more for the patient, there's been a higher incidence of post-traumatic you know, stress, you know, for patients, for family after these uh, medical ICU admissions, because they're on the vent for so long. They're on medications to sedate them and they're away from everyone. There's no way to talk to them. So I feel very bad for the patients, but yes, I think, you know, communicating and talking to, for me, my wife, who is also a doctor and can understand, but to my colleagues, uh, I think it's very important. So I think we do have to uh, really watch mental health, especially during this pandemic. So great questions. And with that being said, everyone, I hope everyone enjoyed this presentation. I know it was longer than I thought. I can't guarantee every presentation is going to be this long, but it's a really passionate topic for me. So thank you very much. And of course, of course, I have to say follow me on Instagram at dr underscore Raj underscore. See you next time.